you like audiobooks or audio shows, check out a free trial of Audible. Just click the link in the description. You are listening to Mindshock True Crime. This is the Maura Murray series. We are on episode 35, A Staged Accident. This is your host, Bruce McGuire. And Marshall Powers. And we are diving deep into an aspect of the case that we have discussed here and there on the podcast, but we're going to examine every detail of the very likely possibility that the so-called accident scene where allegedly Moore Murray was present, which we'll be examining even further because it is left up to debate whether or not she was really there. And I don't know if I'm willing to take on faith, on blind faith, that she was. Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. But we're going to examine all of the problems with the accident scene and the very, very differing testimonies on what is going on with the Saturn and who is present on the scene and the findings of private investigators regarding this aspect of the case. As always, if you like the podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Just check the link in the description. Make sure you subscribe to the channel, click the bell for notifications, and make sure your device is set to allow those notifications if you want to be notified when we drop new episodes in all of our series. You can also like our Facebook page, check us out, Reddit, Twitter, and Patreon. And patrons do get priority in case requests. And you could also request which podcaster you want covering which topic. And we will get to them in a timely fashion. So, Maxwell, what do you think about this accident scene? Are you convinced it was Maura Murray on scene? And are you convinced she hit a tree? Because, I mean, it seems like we've debunked that nonsense many, many yeah. times. Yeah, definitely did not hit a tree. Uh, that's just, it just doesn't make any sense. Just based on the, the visuals, the look on the, on the car. Um, yeah. And um, if she was there, I'm not sure because I don't think she was there. Just because, <laughs> I mean, if you get a, if you're gonna say to hit a tree, I don't know what else. What else are you gonna say? Well, that's a good point. If they're making up one aspect, if if the the narrative steers, they really want everybody to believe that it hit a tree, this or that. What else do they want you to believe? That's a very good point. You cannot trust. People who lie, or even people can be mistaken. I mean, there could be good people. I mean, all of law enforcement could be the good guys. We've examined that many times. They could be mistaken, however. They could have been fed info from one bad guy, no vast conspiracy required. One guy, maybe two guys. And all these other law enforcement are just simply trusting these guys because, for whatever reason, they're in a certain position to be trusted, or they're personal friends. They just never question their integrity. And so most any any law enforcement towing the line could be thinking that they're doing the right thing. So it's not a ton of people all in to intentionally cover anything up. I don't know why that's beyond certain people to grasp, but that's a real possibility. As we mentioned in the previous podcast, I mean, we have DEA involvement. We have U.S. Marshal involvement in the area. There seem to have been a lot of strange things going down, coincidentally, the night of the accident. So what else is a coincidence here? And I'm with you on Moore Murray possibly not even being there because if we're being logical and scientific, you're not just going to take things on blind faith. If we're saying Moore Murray was there, we need actual definitive proof that she was there. 
like actual verifiable definitive proof. We don't seem to have it. But let's start off with some mind shocks on this episode. So Barbara Atwood has been on the top of many people's interview list. So Butch Atwood has passed away and John Murat has passed away as well. So there's, and of course, Cecil Smith allegedly committed suicide as well. There, This case is, it's been a cold case for a while. And a lot of these witnesses, they're older. They're not going to be around forever. So I don't know if you know this yet, Maxwell, but Barbara Atwood was actually interviewed recently. Oh, that's cool. By who? So that's another can of worms. Apparently, some uh, some random online sleuths or redditors got a hold of Barbara Atwood and did a phone interview. That's awesome. And I've listened to the interview, and it is quite strange. We're not going to go through it piece by piece. I'll just outline what it said because we have a lot to go over here. The circumstances of the interview are quite strange. Supposedly... One of, in another coincidence, I mean, our coincidence stack is like higher than the Tower of Babel by now. But uh, apparently this guy, when he called her, he didn't even know that he was related to Barbara Atwood. So they're talking wait, on the wait, phone. Wait, 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 the, the, the guy interviewing Barbara is, is, uh, is related to Barbara? Allegedly. And allegedly he didn't even realize that. She just mentioned it because she saw some guy with a certain name contacting her. And she was like, well, yeah, that's my family last name. Not Atwood, because that's her married name. Yeah. But, and she's saying, oh, yeah, we're related. And the guy's like, wait, no way, really? And then they start talking about people and areas. So I don't know if you're buying that coincidence or not. Some guy who happens to be interested in the Moore Murray case contacts Barbara Atwood and doesn't even know he's related to her until the conversation begins. I don't know. Are you buying that? Yeah, I buy it. I think, uh, I think it makes there's so many people. I mean, there's a lot of people in my family that I don't know about. So, but in this particular conversation, I mean, you don't think that's like that's like striking the lottery? I don't know. I don't know about the lottery. I think it has a better chance than lottery. But because you're in the same area and you're calling some other person, uh, people have sex and reproduce. So, like, it has to. It's bound to hit somewhere. You don't say. <laughs> All right. Yeah, but statistically, okay. I mean, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not with. I'm on. I'm not on board with you and just accepting a lot of these coincidences. I mean, maybe they're just coincidences, but I just find that weird. If all these other things weren't also weird, it'd be easier to dismiss these random coincidences if there wasn't a stack of them already a mile high. So anyway, well, well, hearing the interview too will tell me a lot because you can tell about the tonation and the 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 acting if uh, if, if they're acting. acting so here's the thing yeah. obviously i can't verify with absolutely with absolute certainty that this was barbara atwood however it seems that people close to the murray family are saying that it is now i'm not sure how they verified it but it seems like they are convinced that it is indeed barbara atwood so the other thing i found strange right off the bat was that she either didn't know the name of the westmans or for some reason just called them the people down the street. Like she's giving her recollection of that night, which admittedly is hazy now because so much time has passed. But she's she was saying, oh, the people down the street called the police. Like why wouldn't she say the Westmans unless she's not talking about the Westmans and somebody else called the police that we don't know about. But the interview- I have, I have, no, I have no problem with that because I don't know. 
like people don't know their neighbors anymore. I mean, this is not this is like it's well, weird. In back, well, in New Ham- in the woods of New Hampshire, we're, we're talking the neighbor across the street, and they lived there for many years. We're not talking 2019, Maxwell. We're, yeah. talk- we're talking, yeah, we're talking 2004. Huh. It's it's weird because like I that's a small Maxwell Maxwell. Keep in mind, Maxwell. Keep in mind, this is a small hamlet in New Hampshire. It wasn't even on the map until this case. So people keep to themselves. I don't know. Of just, course they uh, keep to themselves. But you would, if there's only a couple of people in your town, you know who those people are, especially if you're living there for many, many, many years. We're not. Ta- it's not like they just moved there the day before. I mean, the chan- the they were, and they were a bus. As, hold on, hold on. And hold on. And, and they're bus drivers. So they know, the, they know addresses and people. Like they're, not just, they're not shut-ins that never go out. They all know each other. Man, you really make a lot of allowances for people. Because I understand. I don't know. Because like I, I, because I don't know. I don't know motherfuckers down the street and shit. I can be like fucking. <laughs> I can be in a fucking forest and there's a fucking dude just chilling there. I won't know his shit for. I won't know his name for like twenty, thirty years. <laughs> yeah, but not everybody has the memory of Maxwell Powers. <laughs> yeah, but what I'm saying is I probably won't even talk to him. Yeah, but once again, not everybody's Maxwell Power. They all know each other, okay? So, like, the, the neighbors all talk about each other. They all know each other. That's not really up for debate. It's, this has already been... Well, hold on. If, uh, if you... Uh, okay, I got you. I mean, I don't know. I, I, think, it, I think it's... Uh, I don't know. I just, I just don't think people are that talkative or people... So, how come... So well, how come, well it, dep- it depends. I don't so, know how, how come... Barbara, hold I on. Know, I don't know how Barbara is... Yeah, but how come? But the neighbors have already identified each other and have talked about each other many times. So we know for a fact that they all know each other. We're not. <laughs> I mean, for some reason, you're really playing devil's advocate hard on this one. But it's already been verified that all the neighbors know about each other. So what you're saying is that she addressed in previous interviews. Not Barbara. To, to no, the, no, 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 no. No, I'm not saying that. Not Barbara. I'm saying all those those neighbors. So. The Westmans, Rick Forcier, and Rick Forcier, I think they people called him an odd duck. They don't talk to him, but they still know who he is. They know his name. They know where he lives. He lives right next to them. So, I mean, it's not required to talk to your neighbors to know who your neighbors are because you're still going to talk to other people who know who they are. So what I'm, I'm not saying Barbara herself has given interviews because she hasn't, as far as I know, but I'm telling you that based on the transcripts and the interviews from other neighbors, like the Westmans and the Marats, the Westmans, the Marats, the Atwoods, and, the, and Rick Forcier, they all knew who each other were. That's not up for debate. You can try to make excuses for Barbara here, but it's already been, if you look through all the interviews, they all know who each other are. Okay. I'm just, I don't know. I don't know any of my neighbors. Yeah, but we're not talking about you. We're talking about them. Okay. Gotcha. So, and then also the other main thing Barbara said was the location of the vehicle. She actually said it was on Rick Forcier's lawn. So now we have several different locations being described. So... Westman said, so Faith Westman said it was on the street in front of their house. The Marat said it was actually being backed up in the street. And then now she's a Barbara saying it was on the neighbor's lawn. So near Forcier or on his lawn. 
So what do you think of that, Maxwell? We have three different locations for the Saturn. Uh, that's interesting. <laughs> and then other witnesses, if you haven't checked out our Witness X podcast, we go over all these other witnesses that passed by the scene, and they're describing different scenes as well. They're describing, more, in some accounts, Mora's car is on the right side of the, ro- of the road. In others, she's on the wrong side of the road, so she's facing the wrong way as if she spun 180. And then, obviously, we have doors open versus doors closed in different accounts. So, I mean, we have three to four different locations for this Saturn. Well, what, do you, what does that make you think? Um, uh, the, one, people are, are lying. Two, people are misperceiving or misrepresenting, not intentionally. Uh, fuzzy memories. Yeah, fuzzy memories. Yeah. All right, here's what I think. Here's what I think. I think the car might have been moved several times, and maybe none of them are lying. I was, I was thinking that too, I, and also like moved a couple of times. I mean, I guess trying to, like, people look at different times, but they're probably actually trying to get the car to a tow truck or some shit, or I don't know. Well, like, I'm gonna mention trying to, posi- like, try to position the car to to a tow yeah, truck. Yeah, I'm gonna mention this one more time. We've gone over this plenty of times, but I'm gonna go over it again because there seems to be a lot of recent chatter about the black box recorder in the Saturn. So the black box recorder needs to be reset to record new information. So we don't know what, when what was recorded was recorded. So whoever has the data of the black box should know, but whether what happened, that accident could have been from a month, two months, three months, a year before, and the data recorder had not been reset. We don't have that information. So, I mean, I don't know why people are just assuming or taking on blind faith that whatever is in that recorder is from the night of February 9th, 2004. We have no proof of that. And even if it is from that day, what if it was from the earlier accident? Once again, check out our other podcasts. We go over all these possibilities in depth like no other podcast does logically looking down every single possible rabbit hole and seeing how far each one goes. And we are continuing to do that right now. So the black box recorder is really doesn't give us anything because we don't know when that data was recorded. The Marat testimony also says that the rear lights were on as if it was backing up. So Marat seems to think that the, that the Saturn was backed up. So what can we take away from this is it seems like the Saturn could be started and moved. So why wasn't it? So if it was Mora there, she could have theoretically just continued driving. Uh, I see. Yes, very bizarre. A lot of unanswered questions here. So back to the Barbara Atwood interview, she also says that she was the one who made the call to dispatch. And we're going to get into that in a moment because, oh man, all the calls that night and, and what we've already gone over once again in our Witness X podcast is that apparently on the, 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 uh, the police scanner, there might have been another call about an earlier accident. And for some reason, nobody's talking about this. But if there was an earlier accident, maybe it was Mora at the previous accident. And then this one is the staged one at around 7.30, and the earlier one was closer to 7. So Barbara also thought it was daylight when the accident happened. So, I mean, we're talking February, after 7 p.m. in February, in the middle of winter. And for whatever reason, Barb is recalling that it was daylight out. 
Does that strike you as odd, Maxwell? Yeah, I guess so, she's misremembering. In her brain, there's a car on Rick Forcier's lawn. Is it possible she's recalling a different car spin out and she's confusing the two memories? One of them took place during the day, one and then the moral one. Huh. And then another problem we have is that Barbara said that she didn't know that Butch Atwood searched for her. We went over this a bunch of times, too, discussing Butch Atwood. Apparently, he went back out and, and searched for Maura Murray. So I don't know if he was deputized by Cecil Smith, who, for some reason, Cecil Smith was adamant that he didn't know Butch. And yet local rumors say that the two were friends. And then, of course, Butch Atwood's mother, who lived with them, she also worked or volunteered for the police department. So we have a tangled web here. You got to keep all this in mind. So she said that normally, and, and she was also a bus driver. So both, she said both her and Butch usually were home from work every day before five. And so she wasn't sure if Butch Atwood even had a late night run. So I guess she couldn't remember. Because supposedly he was dropping off students from the ski trip. But if we can't verify, I, I really wonder if any of the PIs did their homework. Have we verified that Butch Atwood was dropping off students from a ski trip late? Because what if he wasn't? Hmm. What does that make you think? That uh, he was somewhere else? Butch Atwood is really the sole reason that we have Mora at the accident scene. Because what if it wasn't for Butch? Because again, we have to take Butch's word that he stopped and talked to Mora or possibly someone who looked like Mora. Once again, he said that her hair was down. Mora normally wore her hair up. And then he also said originally it didn't look like her when shown a picture. So he did not immediately identify Mora. So it could... So it could have been someone else. But if we take Butch's testimony out of the equation, we have Faith Westman saying that there's a man smoking a cigarette in the vehicle. We don't have a female on site without Butch Atwood. And Butch Atwood is definitely not a reliable witness because, I mean, his story has changed so many times. I mean, he had lie detector tests. Supposedly he was nervous. He, you know... Whatever we don't either, we can't say. Would you stake your life on Butch Atwood being a reliable witness? Are you asking me? Yeah. Oh, um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, you're isn't, is, about is, it? yeah, but isn't um, isn't uh, well, wasn't there like an argument that like uh, I forget, I forgot which case it was, but they maybe it was the Avery case. But uh, people are actually honest when the story changes because they they kind of um, they, they don't mean it to change. They just kind of like recall different things. Yeah, of course. Or, yeah. yeah, you know what I mean. Like yes. So I'm thinking that's what that was what was happening with um, Atwood. You gonna stake your life on that? I don't. I don't know. I don't think so. But <laughs> you're thinking about it. You might stake your life on Butch Atwood being a reliable witness. Here's the thing, though. John Healy, the PI that interviewed Butch, he said that Butch was afraid of somebody. We don't know if he's insinuating that it was Jeff Williams or Rick Forcier, but he seemed to think that Butch saw what happened to Mora and he didn't say. And if that's true, then he's not reliable because he's not willing to say what happened because he was afraid. You remember that, right? That was from the earlier episodes. Um, yeah, I, 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 I didn't follow what you said. 
<laughs> Max Warney. John Healy, one of the PIs, interviewed yeah. Butch Atwood, and he said that Butch Atwood, he believes that Butch Atwood might have saw what happened to Mora, okay. but he was too scared to say. As if insinuating that it might have been Rick Forcier, possibly somebody else. Wait, so, wait but who interviewed John Healy to say that? Wait, John so Healy interviewed Butch Atwood. Oh, okay. <laughs> wait. Oh, man. Wait. Oh, okay. And then John Healy reported that he was afraid or some shit. Yes, John Healy saying, referenced, in talking about the interview that he did with Butch Atwood, he said that Butch Atwood, it seemed like Butch Atwood was in, intimidated or afraid, and he might have seen what had happened. Hmm. Could also be just being nervous in front of people, just talking to strangers. Sure, but, well, yeah, I mean, it's possible. Or he I could have actually. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. I'd, I'd like to hear. I'd like to see some interviews. Have I? Are there films of at Butch? Yeah, there's short. Interview? There's short news clips, but that's about it. I mean, there's there really not a lot to go on. I don't know if uh, I'm. I'm assuming. I'm assuming John Healy being a professional private eye, he might have. He must have at least tape recorded the conversation with Butch. I mean, he must have, right? Yeah. So there should be an audio of that, which would be interesting. Uh, but the only video of Butch is from random news snippets here and there. So he didn't seem incredibly nervous. He seemed like a normal witness on the news, you know, slightly nervous talking about a case. But he didn't seem overly nervous compared to other witnesses. That's, that's what I got from it. But So she basically said that Butch Atwood told her to call in the accident. And she was the one that made the call. So, but we don't have a transcript of her call, and her call is not on the log. So once again, what is all this funny business with the logs? So if there were three calls, so between Barb and Butch, that would mean that Butch Atwood called, Barb called, and then Grafton called back, and Barb was the one that answered. So there was the problem with the dispatch, things taking longer than usual. There just seemed to have been a lot of problems that night for some reason. So once again, we have her possibly failing memory as she's getting older, but she did put the vehicle in a different position as everybody else. The, the other thing that she said is that she believed that he walked to the Saturn, not drove. So that's kind of interesting because the official story and the one he gave is that he's driving back and that he parked the bus. She said that he parked the bus normally that night. So she admittedly said she can't really remember details, but she said that he parked normally. So that's kind of weird because other testimony says that that night he parked the bus differently than usual, and stayed in the bus doing paperwork. Once again, kind of fishy, kind of fishy. And then she also seemed to say that Butch Atwood and Cecil Smith did not know one another. Once again, Butch says differently, locals say differently. So she also seemed to just offhand think that most people think that someone picked Mora up. So that's pretty much the gist of the interview. So what do you think? Um, about the interview? About Barb's uh, inconsistent statements with the official, the so-called official story. And I mean, the conflicting reports from all these witnesses. This, we don't have one view of the accident scene. We have many different views with many different takes, many different positions for the Saturn. 
A lot of different stories. What's going on here? How often does this happen in missing persons cases? I mean, this is how often does every single neighbor have a different account of what happened? <laughs> they probably thought nothing of the whatever what was going on. They, I mean, they look out casually. Oh, there's a car with the lights on or lights off. Or yeah, but that person could have been seriously injured and nobody's going to help. Yeah, sure. That's a good point. None of this, none of this is, is normal. I mean, I think it's kind of strange how you, you think it's, they didn't think anything of it. I mean, if that's a nasty well, for, some, for some for some reason, when you ask me that, I, I always, I always think of the scene was as having the other cars there already instead of having just one. So I should really think about the sequence that there's one car and then two cars or three cars and then, or the car moved a few times and then, I don't know. I just. Yeah, we're not going to get into 001 for this too much. I mean, we're probably going to have to mention it. But, yeah, the timeline is just a constant problem. And I also find it kind of interesting how certain personalities in the case just they get triggered or try to downplay the timeline and say that the official timeline is fine. That doesn't make any sense because the timeline might be able to make sense of all this because if the car was moved multiple times, if it wasn't Mora, if there was an earlier accident, if this accident was staged, the timeline can prove all that. So I think it's kind of telling on how some people don't even want to look at the timeline. The truth is not afraid of investigation. So why are certain people so terrified of examining the timeline? I don't know. I don't get it. So we do have to say, though, that Faith Westman... She had two different stories, and one of them, she watched the scene the entire time until the officer arrived. Once again, we don't know if it's 001 or Cecil and the Cruiser. We don't know who is in 001. We, we don't know any of that. Also, Butch Atwood told Hanover Dispatch that the location of the vehicle was the weathered red barn on the corner. Barb says it's right across the street on Forcier's lawn. And that she was the one that called in the accident. So there's a lot of inconsistencies that just continue to pile on. So even Barb's story doesn't add up with Butch's story. And she said that he walked, she seems to recall that he walked to the car. Is she confusing this with another spin out? Also, we, I've mentioned this before. Allegedly, the spot where the Saturn stopped was about 100 yards past the weathered barn corner. So it might have not even been the nasty corner that caused the spin-out. I mean, we've talked about that before. I'm going to say it again because I don't think enough people really uh, hone in on that. The car did not spin out right at the corner. It was down the street a ways. So it seems like the corner might have not even been the reason for the spin-out or for the issue. It could have been something else. For example, a speeding car chasing the Saturn and then possibly cutting off the Saturn. Just food for thought. What do you think? Yeah, I got you. Especially, and Tim Westman said he heard an acceleration. So once again, some people think it was Bruce McKay, Officer Pepper. He liked to go nose-to-nose -nose with vehicles. And there were tire tracks on the Westman's lawn as if a car cut through it. So if it was someone cutting off the Saturn, and yeah, we really don't know. It's, it's quite bizarre. The craziness never stops. Some online sleuths also theorize what I just said earlier, that Butch, uh, John Healy's thoughts, that Butch seems to have possibly been able to see what happened because Butch apparently came into the house and told Barbara, the girl is gone. Any thoughts on that? Wait, who said to what? <laughs> who, say, who said the girl is gone? 
Butch Atwood came into the, once again from the Barbara interview. Butch Atwood came into the house and said, "Quote: The girl is gone." <laughs> Wait. So, uh, all right. Butch Atwood said that based on Barbara's interview. Yeah. Or, like that's been known. Uh, I don't believe that's been known before. I don't know. So this is just recently. Yes. So this is after all the cops came and shit. Like, see, so no, before, before. Allegedly, before I don't know if she clarifies exactly. And by the way, there's not all the cops. It's pretty much just Cecil and then Monahan, and then way later it's everybody else. Yeah. So in less than a half an hour, it seems like this vehicle was moved many times, and then Butch is saying the girl is gone. But which girl? Maybe it wasn't even Mora. <laughs> no thoughts, Maxwell. Um, huh, I don't know. All right, let's move on to Monaghan. So, once again, Faith Westman's 911 call had redacted areas, redacted parts, and we really don't know how many calls there were. Theoretically, there could have been more calls and longer calls, or not. We really don't know. I mean, all we can do is theorize. So, apparently, I'm just going to go over Cecil Smith's 001 arrival well, Cecil Smith's arrival and 001, as seen by uh, Witness A. Okay, so it's very convenient how certain people and narrative steers, they might say there's only one arrival, Cecil Smith. But if 001 arrived before Cecil Smith, now we have two arrivals, two possible law enforcement arrivals, or a law enforcement impersonator arriving and law enforcement, or who knows. So apparently Faith Westman's call is less than two minutes, and there are many redactions. So based on timeline, unless the other call, which we don't know about, if there was an earlier call, because once again, even Faith, I believe, said that there was another call other than hers and Barb's. So there could have been an earlier call. Once again, if you haven't checked out our Witness X podcast, we go over that. So, but it, under the official story, Faith Westman's call is the first 911 call for the Saturn. So dispatch does not tell her that an officer is arriving or en route at the scene at the time that she called. So, and then of course the man smoking a cigarette is missing. But if she saw a vehicle nose to nose with lights on and the dispatch doesn't know this, because think about it, if the dispatch, if there's an officer en route who called in that he's en route, dispatch would know. But all they say is, I'll send an officer. So if there's an officer that saw the crash happen, was involved in the crash, or was already on the scene, wouldn't dispatch know that? Wait, say that one more time. Oh, man. All right, so 001 is the SUV that's nose-to-nose -nose with the Saturn at a certain point in time. Okay, you know that, right? Okay, okay. So if, depending on the timeline, if Faith Westman sees the vehicle nose-to-nose -nose with the lights on, did she think that was Cecil? Because later Cecil arrives, did she seem, was she fooled by this? If she's not in on some kind of cover-up. If there's two different police arrivals... Because if she's calling, if she's calling dispatch, if they already have an officer en route 
wouldn't they say wouldn't they say that or respond with something other than I'll send an officer? That means that dispatch doesn't know about 001, right? Because otherwise they would say, oh, we already have an officer on scene, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, because if Karen is driving by at 7.32 to 7.33 p.m., 001 is already there. Okay. So there's a vehicle other than Cecil Smith arriving already on scene. So let's go over the transcript of the interview between Monahan and Art and Maggie from the Oxygen Show. I know you've checked that out by now, right, Maxwell? <laughs> uh, so I, I really should watch that, but you said it's all kinds of like, like biased and. Oh yeah, of course, but it, it kind of exposes the narrative steering. So it it actually some people don't like it for that reason. I think it's good because it makes certain agendas more clear, and those using logic, critical thinking, and deductive reasoning. It's almost like it makes the illogicality more obvious, so it makes it easier to use real logic. Oh, I see. So it's, like a, it's, more, it's more like an exposure to most, to, well, to people who think and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's kind of exposing the narrative steering, whereas before the Oxygen show came out, it was, it was almost like it was all still up in the air. Like, this makes it a little bit more obvious. But uh, once again, I'm not saying that that means the police are the bad guys or the good guys. We don't know. But all we know is that for whatever reason, there seems to be a vested interest in narrative steering. So Art says to John Monahan, you said you were hearing the 911 or the dispatcher from Grafton County on your radio. John says, mm-hmm. Art says, and you heard the 911 conversation kind of with the dispatcher giving an update. John says they were relaying whatever they were relaying. Art says, right. John says, Sergeant Smith, I was working off the Troop F channel. Art says, mm-hmm. John says, which I believe was canon at the time. We updated later. Um, so, but I could monitor and hear Grafton County. Art says, right. John says, so, um, but our coverage in that area at that point, because they hadn't upgraded the, Art says, mm hmm John says, radio towers was terrible. So that was like a dead zone when you go out there, like your portable was just a, Art says, right. John says, five pound anchor on your hip that did you no good. Art says, so I mean, I know a lot of times the standard operating procedure for 911 calls is the standard procedures you would keep the individual on the line until a unit either showed up on the scene or came to the door it sounds like was that what was occurring here john says it's i think they did because i believe it would have been a conversation there's a white house on the corner and i believe that was the caller and so it was a conversation between them and whoever the dispatcher was that evening and so I do believe that, and I don't know for sure, but I believe I remember them hearing the officer here, you know, and they could see the blue lights or something to that effect. But I do remember there was a brief uh, snippet of a conversation that occurred. They could see his blue lights or they relayed some sort of information to Sergeant Smith when he arrived. Now, is that damning or what? Did you follow all that, Maxwell? Uh, no, I, I missed a few things. You mean everything? 
Yeah. All right. So John Monahan is stating that he's listening to the conversation that Faith Westman is having with dispatch while he's driving to the scene. Are you following? Monahan heard the 911 call with Faith Westman live as it was happening. Are you following? Wait, Monahan. Fuck. Um, he followed. Um, wait, what did he do? <laughs> do you know who John Monahan is, Maxwell? Is it? Is the? He's the second dude that showed up. The state trooper. Yes. Okay. So he's the state trooper. He is listening to the Faith Westman 911 call to dis to dispatch while he's driving. He's listening to the call live because his radio is tuned in. Okay, got it. Because Faith Westman is calling 911 to report the accident. Okay, got it. Faith Faith called the state trooper Monahan listened in live. Okay. Yeah, so as he's driving, he's listening to the call and he's saying that Faith said that they could see the blue lights. Uh, no shit. Get the fuck out of here. Yes, so we know that that's not <laughs> Wait, so so he heard that shit live? So he was yes, he exactly. was hearing that? Exactly. Oh, that's awesome. So he's Oh wait, 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 what, that must have been recorded, right? Is that that's not recorded? Well what what what's not recorded? That was that recorded that he's she was saying that I could see the blue lights? Oh, yes, but it hasn't been released. We don't have that recording. I'm sure it exists. We have a transcript with redaction. That's all we have. From the FOIA, from Aaron Larkin's Freedom of so, so, so what does it say? Continue. Well, no, that's, that's the gist of it. So hold on a second. Let, let's line up this timeline. So Monahan is stating he heard the 911 call by Faith Westman. The Freedom of Information Act that Aaron Larkin report that uh, Aaron Larkin obtained said that the call lasted under two minutes. So we're talking between 7.27 and 7.29 p.m. Okay? So they saw, blue, they saw blue lights before Cecil Smith's arrival. I got it. Okay. So it's not just, so there's a third one? Wait, what are you talking about? There's only, wasn't there only two people that showed up, Monaghan and Cecil? Well, Monaghan didn't get there till, till way later. Oh, okay. So he's like... So he was a third person. There was somebody else. Um... Well, okay. Do you do you not remember any of the conversations? Oh, Jeff. Wait, Jeff about you, do you not? The official story is that Cecil Smith was driving SUV 001. So there was only yeah, yeah, one yeah. police arrival. Now, before the Oxygen Show came out to, to feed that uh, propaganda to everybody to just swallow up, people were saying there were two different arrivals because Cecil Smith was in the sedan. And this is what other witnesses have stated, that Cecil Smith was driving the sedan, so someone else was in 001, and 001 was parked nose-to-nose -nose with Mora's Saturn, as Witness A has said. I mean, this is one of the cruxes of the entire case, Maxwell. Uh, I see. So it's possible that Mora was in the trunk of the 001 and take it somewhere else, son. Yes, but when Witness A drove by, she said that she didn't see anybody at all. So she saw she saw 001 and Mora's Saturn there, but no people. That's Witness A's account. You don't remember that? Not really, uh, but Witness A was never identified, right? She was. Uh, and who was it? Was that, was that uh, Faith or something? Wait, what? <laughs> oh, wait, that's not Faith. Uh, wait, so who, wait, so who is? <laughs> Witness A is Karen McNamara. She's gone public. Oh, yeah. We discussed it. Karen McNamara. Yeah. No, we, 
Oh man. Oh yeah. Oh man. That's Karen McNamara. She was she was a big one. So according to the actual police report, Cecil Smith's report, Cecil Smith said that he was dispatched at 7.35 p.m. and arrived at 7.45 p.m. So let's go over this again. If, if Faith Westman was only on the phone until 7.29 p.m., Cecil Smith wasn't even notified yet. And Monahan is saying that Faith Westman sees blue lights in front of her house, in front of the Saturn. Yeah. It's mind shock time, Maxwell. How can all of the narrative steerers say, like, let's, some of them say that Cecil arrived earlier and he just didn't fill whatever out. So if Cecil arrived at 7.35-ish or whatever, even if that's the case, but according to Cecil, he was notified at 7.35. And he didn't get there until 7.45. But Monahan is saying that he's overhearing Faith Westman's conversation. So before 7.29 p.m., Faith Westman sees blue lights in front of the Saturn. What do you got, Maxwell? What do you got? I don't know. Is this weird? Absolutely, it's weird. So Monahan is responding from Lisbon, which is 15 minutes away. So Monahan said that Cecil was in Cruiser 002, which is the same vehicle that McKean of McKean's towing saw him drive away earlier when he got towed out of a ditch. And that's a whole nother can of worms. We've discussed that a bunch of times as well. But is Monahan's testimony here from the Oxygen Show transcript is this the smoking gun we've been waiting for in tackling the issues with the timeline? Because if Faith Westman's call really lasted under two minutes, she's off the phone by 729. As soon as she sees the blue lights, she gets off the phone. But that's not Cecil. Because Cecil didn't get there till after. How much after is almost irrelevant because that means somebody else was there. Yeah, that's true. The mystery, so, the mystery car. So what was redacted? So obviously names, addresses could have been redacted, but also man smoking a cigarette and officer has arrived on the scene with the lights on. Was that what was redacted? Is that what Monahan overheard live when he was listening to the radio en route from Lisbon, which would have been before 7.29 p.m.? So... This opens up so many cans of worms because we can we really trust Butch Atwood? I don't know. I think, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Why do you think Art, Maggie, all these other people, why do you think they're pushing so hard and pretending that Cecil was in 001 and he was the sole arrival of law enforcement presence at the Saturn? Like, it seems like they have a vested interest in to get everybody to believe that, to swallow that propaganda. But why? Do they just really want to pin it on Rick Forcier? Because it could have been a police impersonator in 001. I mean, we're not even saying it was Jeff Williams or a police officer. It could have been another criminal who's not a police officer. Why would they not want that investigated? That's not going to, you know, they don't want the police to look bad. Okay, whatever. That's understandable for Art. I mean, you know, if he's not going to be objective and logical. 
and, you know, he doesn't want to investigate anything pointing at the police. That's fine. But what if it wasn't the police? What if it was a police impersonator? Doesn't, don't they care about the truth? Why are they so, why are they so vehemently denying any issue with the timeline or that Cecil was in 002? Yeah, I don't know. That's all you got? Uh, for now. <laughs> Good thing you're doing a podcast on the more murder case. All right, you ready for mine? You ready for another mind shock, Maxwell? I mean, we're dropping mind shock after mind shock on this episode. All right, let's do it. All right, John Smith has provided us once again with some very interesting information. So this is what he posted recently. Within the past month, I have spoken to one of the fire department members. She is actually the wife of the former Woodsville Fire Department chief. When speaking to her, she told me that the scene looked staged. The car had not hit a tree. There were no tire marks in the snowbanks on the tree side of the road. She also stated that they were told to get away from the vehicle. That's kind of weird. Like, what if they needed them to assist or there was somebody hurt? She also stated to me that en route to the scene, they had overheard the radio a call about be on the lookout for a tall blonde walking east towards the stage shop store. If she is correct, we should be able to believe her because she is a trusted person with the fire department. So this is what John Smith posted. What do you think about that, Maxwell? We have a tall, they wanted people to be on the lookout for a tall blonde. What does that have to do with Maura Murray? So she, uh, she just heard this on the radio, right? Yeah, as they were en route, she heard this call to be on the lookout for a tall blonde, and she's also reporting, so this is the wife of the former Woodsville Fire Department chief. She's saying that the accident looks staged as well. I mean, so we have all these different people. We have John Healy with the League of Private Investigators. We have Frank Kelly. We have all these people, John Smith, several different accident reconstructionists, professionals saying that the accident scene looks staged. Why are all the people saying the accident scene looks staged? And then Art, Maggie, all these other personalities, they don't want to look at that at all. Doesn't that seem weird? Mm, it's a little weird. Just a little? <laughs> it's almost... I mean, what's, yeah, but... Uh, what's, uh... They seem to just want everybody to swallow the official narrative for some reason. The truth is not afraid of investigation, Maxwell. Do not forget. <laughs> We're actually going to be returning to this individual as we get into more issues with this staged accident. So right now we're going to look at Sharon Roush's notes. And Sharon Roush is, of course, Bill Roush's mother. You got that right. You got that straight, all straight. Yeah, yeah, got it, got it. All right, cool. <laughs> Episode 35, baby. So she's stating, okay, so th there's a lot of weird things, but her notes, once again, are... From This is from an archived forum from the official family site. So we're looking at October 2005, several months after the accident. We're not looking years and years later with fuzzy memories. We're looking several months after relatively close to, the, uh, to that night of February 9, 2004. So on, she's citing this in the notes. And the notes, I believe, were in real time or close to real time within weeks 
of all of this, but it was posted, this is taken from an archive on October 2005, so this is all prior. On February 11th, Bill, Billy, and Sharon, so Bill's father, Bill Sr., arrived at the Haverhill Police Department around 5 p.m. on Wednesday, February 11th. Billy was extensively interrogated in private, and then Bill and I were questioned in the room with Billy. Okay, so Sharon Roush is saying that Billy Roush was interrogated by himself, and then also they were all interrogated together as one big fa happy family. You following? <laughs> Interviewed by who? The Haverhill Police Department. <laughs> okay. Okay. So the notes here said that the customer service department told Billy that only law enforcement could make a request for Maura Murray's cell phone tracking information. So Sharon told him to contact the police in Haverhill. They had been in contact with him by this time. Because of my occupational background and the fact that Sharon B. Roush is actually me, I called Sprint. So Sharon was told that Mora had a Samsung A620 camera phone, but that the cell phone signal could not be traced because her phone did not have the chip which provided that technology. She was told the phone was active, but it was possible that the battery was dead. So, once again, we have to be open to the possibility that Sprint was mistaken and that the phone was active, but that there was no signal because there is no signal in the area surrounding Maura Murray's accident site or the Saturn's final resting spot. So it could have appeared that the battery is dead without actually being dead. Okay. I also learned that Maura had checked her voicemail from her cell phone at approximately 4.30 p.m., well, once again, do we know that it was Mora that was checking her phone? But anyway, on Monday, February 9th, and that the very last call made from her cell phone was approximately at 1 p.m. on the 9th. Both of these times are from memory. When the cell phone bill arrived in March, we learned that the last call from Mora's cell phone was to Billy's cell phone. Billy told me that Mora tried to reach him by phone and sent him one email on Monday, February 9th, as quoted in the outline. I called Billy and gave him the information that I had learned from Sprint PCS and told him to call the police. Shortly after, Sergeant Cecil Smith from the Haverhill Police Department called me. He wanted information on how he could speak to Sprint to get the information that I had learned firsthand. I gave him very detailed instructions, including which option number to select each time and the name of the account, Billy's mailing address, and my social security number. All of these items were required for Sprint to release any information. Sprint was also on notice that Mora was missing. Before I let him go, I asked what he knew about Mora's disappearance. Based on my notes, the following, while perhaps not an actual quote, is nearly verbatim what Sergeant Smith told me. Are you ready, Maxwell? Okay. So here's what Cecil Smith said. I was on duty last night and received a call around 7 or 7.30 p.m. that there was an accident. Uh-oh. He's saying 7 or 7.30. So was there an earlier accident around 7? Did he know about both? But once again, from Cecil Smith's mouth, if Sharon Roush is to be believed, he didn't even receive a call 
until 7.30. And this is if, once again, Faith Westman's call lasted until 7.29. So there was already another vehicle there. Okay. I arrived on the scene approximately 10 minutes after I received the call. As I was driving to the scene of the accident, I met five or six cars. When I arrived on the scene, there was no one present. I ran the plates and saw that the car belonged to 61-year-old Frederick Murray of Weymouth, Massachusetts. There was only one set of footprints leading from the car. That's kind of weird. Other accounts say there were no footprints at all. This is a tourist area, and it is not unusual for someone to have car trouble or, in this case, get stuck in the snow and abandon their vehicle. I assumed we would hear from Mr. Murray about his car. When we did not, we, tr we started trying to reach him today. Note, today would have been Tuesday, February 10th. When we finally reached him this evening, we learned that his daughter, Mora, was driving the car. I asked him many questions, and he clearly indicated that he had no knowledge that a young girl was driving this abandoned car. He was very nice and sympathetic. He soon called me a second time, stating that he was having no success in reaching the department in Sprint PCS. We were speaking on my home phone, so I got on my cell phone and asked that he call Sprint and that I would walk him through the steps. So wait a second. Sharon Roush needs to, needs to teach Cecil Smith? Sergeant Cecil Smith, former military intelligence officer, how to tr how to get in touch with Sprint and, and get the phone trace? Is this making any sense to you, Maxwell? Mm, that's interesting. So some random middle-aged woman needs to teach a police officer how to do his job? <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is this is mind shocking. This is this is mind-boggling. Okay. He was still unable to follow the procedure. <laughs> And by the time I reached the representative, she gave me a direct number where Haverhill PD could call them. <laughs> okay, I don't know what kind of picture Sharon Rouse is painting here, but she seems to be painting Cecil Smith as completely incompetent here. So he can't follow basic directions on just giving the Sprint PCS representative basic information to move forward. <laughs> She said he was still unable to follow the procedure. <laughs> she was walking him through the steps. <laughs> All he has to do is to provide these basic, the basic information which she has. So we're talking name of the account, mailing address, social security number. That's it. That's what was required for Sprint to release the info. And so she's walking Cecil Smith through this information on the phone. <laughs> Do you find any of this strange, Maxwell? Um, it's a little odd. I mean, that just a little odd, man. Okay, all right, all right, all right. So, all right, okay. So he's saying it took him ten minutes to respond. Which, okay, that's fine. Some people, in order to force the timeline to fit, were saying that Cecil Smith was driving over a hundred miles an hour or whatever if he was in zero zero one to arrive super quick obviously that's not possible okay so he also stated that he ran the plates and he came up with fred murray so he doesn't know anything about any girl so why is he saying to the westmans so where's the girl because butch atwood said that there was a female to dispatch and the westman said that cecil smith asked them quote so where's the girl end quote so he's telling Sharon Roush a different story here because he's saying he's looking for Fred. He doesn't know nothing. 
and he doesn't speak to Fred until Tuesday afternoon. So according to what Cecil Smith is stating to Sharon Rash, he doesn't know if it's Mora until Tuesday afternoon or early evening because we have this 8 p.m. bolo female 5'7 walked away from the scene. Did they have Mora's license? What's going on here? All this is not adding up, Maxwell. Are you following? Because oh, <laughs> Butch Atwood and Cecil Smith spoke before 8 p.m. So Butch Atwood at least told him it was a female on the scene. So Cecil put an exact bolo out Tuesday in the middle of the day before he spoke with the Murray family. And this is for Maura Murray. So how did he get this information? And why is he telling Sharon Roush a different story? What do you got, Maxwell? What do you got? Wait, so, um, so... Cecil told Sharon that he didn't know Maura was driving the car until Tuesday evening, the day after the accident. But the first bolo that Cecil put out was that Monday night at 7.54 p.m. So he's lying to her? Well, I, don't, I mean, I'm not saying he's lying. I'm saying there's inconsistencies. So he had her height exactly correct on this first bolo. So it, it's almost like they had her accident because how could Butch guess her exact height to the inch? I mean, I guess he could have, but who knows? So, yes, and Cecil does, tells Sharon that he doesn't know that it's a girl that was driving because by all accounts, it's Fred Murray's vehicle. So by the time, by the time Cecil, by Tuesday afternoon to evening, there's two Bolo reports that had gone out for a female. One of them exactly matches more. So what is he telling Sharon? So also some people theorize that Cecil Smith is just pretending to be incompetent when he's on the phone with Sharon. He's pretending he can't get in touch with the sprint. He can't follow the very basic sprint PCS procedure to get the information on tracking the phone. So he's just basically playing stupid so he doesn't get the information on purpose, as if they don't want the information. What do you think about that? Because um, he doesn't want Sharon to know the tracking information on Maura's phone? I don't know. So he's, he was acting it? I don't know. I mean, these are all questions that need to be asked. Something else that's kind of interesting, once again, let's go to John Marat. He said that the bus driver never left his bus and the car was on the wrong side of the road. So that's another problem because, huh, because, yeah, some people say that Butch Atwood would have never been close enough to Maura to even see her clearly or guess her height or see her clearly in any way. But, uh, yeah, John Marat is stating something other than what Barbara said, because Barbara said that she remembers that Bush walked out to the car and was not in the bus when he talked to Mara, if he talked to Mara or whoever he talked to. So, yeah, I mean, we, we really don't know any of this. But, uh, yeah, once again, unfortunately, Cecil Smith either committed suicide or if there were two guns found, as was reported, we don't even know if he really committed suicide or not. If he was visited by... Uh, the New Hampshire State Police, who knows? Possibly the FBI, possibly individuals pretending to be the New Hampshire State Police. Are there criminals who are not the police impersonating the police? And that's what's throwing a wrench in this. And maybe certain police individuals believe that it it was another police officer who harmed Mora. So they're doing this whole cover up when it really wasn't. 
And it was a non-police officer pretending to be a police officer. And they're so scared to look, make the police look bad. They're doing, they're spinning this whole cover up. We haven't really focused on that theory yet. What do you think about that theory, Maxwell? Yes. Um, that's a good one. People don't think twice about it. You know, if they see lights and stuff, but, you know, it could be legit. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, so this February 9th bolo, yeah, and then there was also the February 10th, 12.36 p.m. bolo issued from Maura Murray. Okay, so let's go back to John Smith's testimony here. So he also posted this. I recently spoke with who was on the fire department in February 2004. Her husband is the fire chief. Well, speaking to her, she stated that on the way to the accident scene in the fire truck, they heard a call for them to be on the lookout for a tall blonde walking west towards the Swiftwater store. So is this a third bolo for another female? Also stated that the scene looked staged and that the Saturn definitely did not hit a tree. She said there were no tire tracks in the snow up to any of the trees or in the snowbank at all. So it's weird because we have, meanwhile, we have Scott Wall, the official family representative who's saying, who's still maintaining that it hit a tree against all odds and, and does not explain any of it and just makes cryptic references to some other witness who proves the official story without actually offering any evidence. All very, very strange. Also stated to me that back in 2004 and to this date, protocol is to call out fire department and EMS at exactly the same time when there is unknown personal injury or leakage from the vehicle. This protocol was not followed. If indeed protocol has been followed and fire department and EMS returned out at the same time as police, it is possible that they would have arrived in time to find the driver still at the vehicle, and we would not be having this discussion right now because Maura Murray would be home safe. Unless, of course, something happened to her at UMass and she never even got up to New Hampshire. But Cecil Smith told the Westmans that there was a rag in the tailpipe. Cecil said in his accident report that he was responding to the report of a car into a tree. That is not the case if you read the narrative from the Grafton County Sheriff's Department log. Cecil, right in his accident report six days later, and never even speaks about the rag in the tailpipe, yet he mentioned it to the Westmans on February 9, 2004. It was also mentioned in the bolo the next day when it was put out around 12.15 p.m. So how many inconsistencies are in this case? Have you ever heard of another missing person? I mean, we're talking about a random spin-out on the side of the road and there is all this obfuscation, oddities, coincidences, narrative-steering propaganda that doesn't make any logical sense in any kind of way. Any thoughts, Maxwell? Um, yeah, these are some interesting finds. Um, Do you remember what we talked about in the last podcast with the DEA, the U.S. Marshals? What is all this strange... Uh, agency activity that ha that just happened to be centered around Haverhill, New Hampshire that night. Coincidentally, so some people think that something happened and then some agency might have staged the accident. And that's why there's all this cover up and redaction and Mora intersected with some kind of uh, undercover operative in a much bigger case and they just can't ever release this information. Let's see. Yeah, it's so weird. Like, I, I see New Hampshire as this dead town. Like for all this setup to occur in that spot, it just I don't know. I, I think 
don't know. I just find, I just find that weird. Also, say like um like trafficking people like they they occur everywhere. They occur like you know like dead towns. Yeah, I don't know what to think. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of narratives being spun here, but if someone at UMass, or they wanted to make Mora look bad, so all of these unsubstantiated claims, all these r negative rumors about Mora kind of to paint her as troubled, suicidal, I mean, a lot of them, or all of them might not even be true, and also the alcohol issue. So if this is a regular DUI walkaway, if they want everybody to believe that she was drinking, if she wasn't drinking, or if it wasn't even her... That's the next thing we're going to examine because I think this is one of the most overlooked aspects of the case as well. Because do we, once again, we don't have proof it was her, but what is the deal with all the alcohol? Because they even had the redacted alcohol receipt from the liquor store. And once again, the liquor store in Amherst, which they've never released the security footage. So we have no proof it was even her who purchased the alcohol. And if it was her, was she with someone? We've talked about this a bunch of times. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of things that don't add up. Once again, Faith Westman said, "Man smoking a cigarette." John Marat said, "The Saturn backed up, so the Saturn is drivable." So, in the middle of winter, I mean, the narrative doesn't really fit. Is Moore Murray going to take a bunch of alcohol and just walk off from the accident scene if the if the Saturn is still drivable? And why is there a rag in the tailpipe? <laughs> Did you ever have a final theory about the rag in the tailpipe, Maxwell? No. Any theory at all? Um, I really don't know. I forget that. There was so much information. I remember, like, Fred suggesting it to her at one point, right? Yeah, to keep the car from smoking. But, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty bizarre. All right, another issue. So Atwood's constantly changing testimony. Atwood also mentioned at one point that the car wouldn't start because the radiator was smashed in. But it wasn't smashed in, and it never hit any tree. So, is At was Atwood just told a narrative to run with? Is Atwood just stating? Because once again, if his family was apparently involved in in he was was he a police he was a police officer. He said he was a police officer, even though he wasn't a police officer. But his family were police officers. His mother works or volunteers for the Haverhill Police Department. Did they just kind of use him to play a role in this whole narrative from an upper agency, and this is all one big cover-up? I don't know. I think, well, don't you think a, a better cover-up would be like somewhere in the woods where no one would see? I don't know. Yes. Well, okay, if they're trying to get rid of Maura Murray, here's the thing, and this is a fallacy that a lot of people fall for. What makes anyone think that they intentionally meant the, for the car for that to occur in that spot. What if, if some people believe that the Saturn was being towed? So what if another vehicle was involved, cut them off, whatever, possibly an FBI, undercover FBI, undercover DEA, possibly something that has nothing to do with Mora? What if something happened and the other vehicle fled and the Saturn was left there and there was no so the original plan was to get it to the national forest? And the original plan was to have the car hidden away somewhere quiet, and then something went wrong. And that's what we have here, and they did the best they could to cover it up. Uh, that makes sense. Um, a, uh, a conspiracy gone wrong. Yeah, and so you need a bigger conspiracy to cover it up. Yeah, I can see that happening, because like, you know, people are people. <laughs> 
make mistakes and people aren't perfect. So even we really got to we really got to get those Maxwell mugs out. I think the people are people is is going to be a hit. <laughs> Wait, did I just say that? Yeah, you say that all the time. That's one of your go-to catchphrases. Ah, uh, shit. <laughs> you don't even realize what you're saying. <laughs> nah, I don't know. Wait, I, do I say that a lot? Yeah, you do. Almost every podcast. People are people. Maybe not every po- every couple podcasts, yeah. No shit. People are people. Huh. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. Anyway, what, what was I, what was my point with that? No, I have no idea. <laughs> Wait, what was, I, what was I talking about before you said something? Well, you were saying it would be easier to, if you were going to get involved in a conspiracy. I was just saying it's the cover-up. It's a conspiracy gone wrong and a bigger conspiracy to cover the conspiracy gone wrong. Oh, I see. So is Butch Atwood really just following orders from an upper agency? And that's why he was intimidated, because if the FBI told him something or the DEA, he's probably going to comply, right? I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, it just, looks, it just sounds like he was just a nervous wreck that just happened to... Uh, they, he just ended up changing his story because he's nervous. Well, here's the thing, though. He's saying there was an accident. What if there was no real car accident? Because, I mean, we have the fire department, we have EMS, we have all these other people saying that it just did not look like an accident. Like, are you really willing to well, take... Well, I think, I, think, I think that car being in the kind of in a ditch, it wasn't a ditch, right? No. Not, not a ditch, but like a, on the lawn or some shit. It's not, it wasn't on the road, right? Uh, well, it depends on which account. In some of the accounts, it was just on the ro- on the side of the road. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, if it's all right, if it's on the road, even if it's sideways, uh, I guess people, for the most part, would assume there was an accident, and the car is not moving. There was an accident. But why are all these people saying it was a staged accident? Nobody's saying it hit a tree, so or a snowbank. So, are we really going to take on blind faith Butch Atwood's testimony above the testimony of EMS or fire department? Or private eye, or or professional reconstruction. Like, why are the narrative steers willing to take? So, so three people pretty much said it was a stage accident, except for Butch Atwood. Well, a lot of people said it was stage, including professional accident reconstructed. Re- well, the accident reconstructionist said it didn't hit a tree. I guess it could have been some other type of accident, but we don't know. We also don't know that the damage that occurred to the Saturn. How do we know that it occurred? beyond the weather and bar and corner what if that damage had occurred at an earlier accident or even a couple months earlier i mean how, how do we know how do we know that damage occurred there we don't yeah we don't so neighbors are watching the scene you got law enforcement ems fire bus driver so yeah it's 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 all weird there's a lot of witnesses and we don't know what's going on okay so we also have witness C. They were driving to the jail. We have Susan Champy, the other witness. Nobody's at the scene. Obviously, witness A. Nobody's there. So the, uh, the driver of 001's not there. Moore is not there. So did 001 come to pick up the driver who was known to them and not Mora? Were they complicit in trying to get rid of the Saturn for some reason? Because by the time Cecil arrives, nobody's there and none of the neighbors see anything. What do you think? Say single last sentence. None of the neighbors saw, nobody saw anything. So if there was a man smoking a cigarette, 001 just shows up. The man hops in with 001 
and or they both duck down in the seats when uh, Karen drives by for some reason. Because you have these other witnesses, nobody saw the driver of 001 or Maura Murray. Nobody saw them. So if he just pulled up with the lights on, somebody else hopped in and they drove off if they were both complicit in setting up the Saturn staged accident. And so by the time Cecil arrives, nobody's there. It looks like a movie. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. Yeah, like it's just the, just the whole... Also, the whole Butch, timeline, like the, also the in, in Butch's, I actually almost forgot. Yeah, in Butch's transcript, he actually mentioned a he. He said he. So he was talking about a guy, unless he misspoke or the transcript is wrong. So he's talking about a male, and then, of course, Fade said man smoking a cigarette. So it's, Yeah, I, I, mix up, I mix up he and she a lot, so I don't know. I uh, I think that was talked about on Reddit. Yeah, but you're I'll you're the this. only person you're the only person I know that that can't tell the difference between she and he or mess. Well, it's not it's not that it's not that uh, it's not that uh, I'm I I don't know the difference. It's just that uh, it comes out different. But not for anybody else. I I say I I mix it up. I'd say about like twenty times a year. Or probably I would, more than thirty times. I would a year. say I would say twenty. Like, I would, I would say twenty times a week in uh, in the amount of podcasts we do, but uh... <laughs> wait, 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 so wait, so so you you I've see I've said it here on the podcast that like I oh you've mixed that to... up oh you've mixed that up a million times I I don't that even, he, I don't that, even the, wait that he that he and she yeah well you do it so often I don't even mention it anymore oh so wait wait so so if you're not if you're not surprised by that like why are you so surprised I mean there's gotta be there's like a five billion people or seven eight. Nine billion people in the world. Because out of all the people I've ever met in my life, even with people English second, third, fourth language, no, I've never known anybody who's ever met mixed that up. It's uh, it's actually not that I'm supporting it, but uh, or the diagnosis or whatever. But supposedly, like a lot of these uh, ADD, ADHD lecturers and, and psychologists, they've noted that as one of the not symptoms necessarily but like that's one of the things that come up so it's out there like the people mix up he or she well so there's um, there's possibility that he's got some weird add i don't think so because apparently nobody's ever mentioned that before and he apparently never messed that up again because in all the other one he's talking about her more murray so uh her and she so if that really was an issue with him he'd probably have messed that up a number of times but there's no evidence of that so to assume that everybody's just got a maximal powers he does, he doesn't, yeah but he doesn't hasn't done like 35 episodes of shit so he needs 35 episodes nobody like, nobody yeah but how, most, many, how many interviews has he had i don't know but that's all a moot point because without evidence you can't just assume everybody has a maxwell powers type brain Without evidence, there's no reason to believe that. <laughs> I was he saying he had a type. I, yeah, but without any evidence, without any evidence, there's no reason to believe that he would ever mess that up because. I just think the numbers of like seven, eight billion people, like you know, I would say like. Well, this is two thousand. Well, this is two thousand four, so there were less people then. I don't know how many less billion, but there were less in two thousand four, and. <laughs> And also, we're talking about people. Even so, English is his first language. So I, I don't. I mean, that's so silly. That's like. I mean, that's like saying if he's talking about a rag, he misspoke and said some other word. If nobody's ever misspoken on any word that we have evidence of, we're not going to assume they're just going to randomly mix up he and she. I mean, that's pretty silly. Now, if you had made that mix up, we have plenty of evidence to suggest that you always make that mix up. So for you to do it wouldn't be strange, but for somebody else. 
that's pretty strange and unlikely. So, the, so what? The frequency is less in him than in you're turning into you're turning into Jr. with some of these uh, devil's advocate scenarios that are just so out there. I mean, yes, it is theoretically possible that he's misspoke. I mean, it's also possible that you could win the lottery tomorrow. But it's just to to just assume he misspoke. It's kind of silly if he never if if there's no evidence that he ever did that any other time. Well, doing it once can be out of like a 70 year lifespan is so uh, what are the chances that he did it i agree with you but what are the chances he did it on that phone call on the more on the night more and more disappeared i mean that's out of this whole lifetime he did it only once on that night that doesn't make any sense that's like saying he might have gotten he got struck by lightning that night and that's why his memory was bad i mean i guess it's theoretically possible why would you believe that just uh, we'll move on from the he she. Just <laughs> kind of reminding her that that never Maxwell Powers, Maxwell Army. All right, there is another interesting point. If Faith Westman's call was the first information related to dispatch and police, when Cecil showed up, would he have asked, "Where's the guy? Where's the man smoking a cigarette?" Instead of asking where the girl is. Did you get that? I uh, missed it. Sorry, man. <laughs> Maxwell Army. That's the that's the single point I made since saying Maxwell Army the previous time. If Faith Westman's call was the very first call, and this is the first information that law enforcement has about any kind of accident, when Cecil Smith arrived, shouldn't he have been asking where the man smoking the cigarette is? Uh-huh. Because if that's what was... Wait, was, he, was, he, was, he, was she so sure about that? We don't know. Later, she changed her story, and then all of a sudden, it's a female with a cell phone charger. I don't know. There's a lot of shady business there, but I'm just giving this theoretical. If that's what was redacted, shouldn't Cecil have showed up and be like, where's the man smoking the cigarette? Because they didn't change the story to the cell phone charger until later. So that night, it was a man smoking a cigarette. Once again, the only explanation I can think of if it was really Maura Murray at the, she might have been at the earlier accident. So if police already stopped her and had her license, that would explain a lot of things. Then all of a sudden there's some missing pieces from the logs and that's all covered up. Or of course, if it's a more grand conspiracy and they already knew she was coming up there, I don't know. The other thing we didn't really think of is what is Monahan, what information is Monahan privy to? Was Monahan already en route to the accident scene before Faith Westman's call? And how would uh, that's possible if he knew the people involved? But yeah, if there was, or if there was an earlier accident that's not on that there's no evidence of, other than the witnesses that overheard it, the earlier accident that was closer to seven p.m. Uh, I see. Was the earlier accident that was uh, that was handled right? Too. Well, don't you remember our podcast on that? Actually, no, but <laughs> I, know, I just know about a certain that was episode. That. that was episode 28. But I don't remember if it was actually it was a real it was a real road assist, right? Like it was a real um, it was a real thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people like cops went there and shit. Well, we don't know. Supposedly they were en route, but then 
if they left in private vehicle, which either that was Mora or if it's not Mora, then they abandoned, then they were called off. We really don't know. I mean, you should re-listen to that podcast for all the details on that or if listeners haven't heard that. We go pretty deep into all the aspects of an earlier accident. But um, you know what's interesting, though? The tow call isn't on any of the logs. Don't you find that interesting? We have almost no information on who called the tow and exactly when it was there. So Lavoie towed it at about 8.45 p.m., but where's the call to him? So once again, it's kind of weird. He was just sleeping. He was asleep on the couch, even though it was the other tow guy, McKean. It was McKean's turn on the rotation, remember? He was so mad, he even showed up at the accident scene and was like, what the heck? It's my tow. You're costing me money. Remember all that? Uh, vaguely. So did Monahan call for the tow? What was it? Was Monahan involved in the DEA op? We really don't know. But uh, supposedly within weeks of this, Monahan was demoted to desk duty. We went over that as well. I mean, there's, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of strangeness with Monahan as well. Initially, he seemed honest to me. I mean, he also said when Cecil said he arrived in 001, Monahan responded, that's not what he saw. <laughs> so Monahan seems to remember vaguely. I mean, it's not explicitly stated, but it seems like Monahan is insinuating that Cecil arrived in 002. And why is nobody interviewing the fire department on what Cecil was driving that night? Because if it's 002, I mean, that's, again, this is the smoking gun, one of the major cruxes of the case. So the other thing that's strange is that, the once again, we've gone over this before, law enforcement's treatment of the Murray family. Like, they, they want to steer the narrative that the Murrays were the ones who said that Mora was suicidal. Even if they made might have made a comment in an emotional state, law enforcement was painting them as really pushing that forward. And... They also blamed the family for the leak, the leaked info in the rag and the tailpipe story. And then they also had Fred take out the rag from the tailpipe in the garage before he started the vehicle. So that's kind of weird. But we have these EMTs who knew about the rag. And then Cecil told the Westmans about the rag. And it was also on the bolo the next day. So they're blaming the family for all these things. And then obviously the way they treated them at the recent press conference during the... Uh, the recent house excavation, which wasn't even properly done. I mean, this is all, this is all bizarre and bizarre, but the, the tailpipe or just the white bag in the window, I mean, this is a distress signal. So it's kind of weird though. Think about this though. If you're going to abduct somebody from a vehicle, if you put a white bag in the window, the police are just going to think that the car broke down. So that'll buy you a whole lot of time before they start looking for a missing persons, right? That's kind of dark. You follow that, Maxwell? Um, actually, didn't. <laughs> Maxwell Army. Uh, so you know how, like, when people break down on the road, they put a white bag or some kind of white shirt or a white signal that the car is broken down. Ah, oh, so that's why they put that shit on there. That oh, shit. you didn't know that? No, I have no fucking idea. But I, <laughs> like, I, I was thinking, like, I, I've seen it probably once in my lifetime, but now, you've probably seen it a whole lot more than that. You just can't remember. <laughs> That or I mean, I, I I do know that they put a tennis ball on the antenna. Actually, I was try I tried to figure this out. Why the hell did they put a fucking tennis ball on the goddamn antenna? Like, so the antenna is like in front of the car, or like, or they put a fucking stick with a fucking tennis ball. 
so they know how far the car is so they don't hit the curb or a fucking person or uh, a wall but hold on here's hold on hold on here's the main point though let's say you abducted somebody from their vehicle and you just put that that distress or whatever the white signal that the car broke down the police aren't gonna investigate it immediately you just bought yourself some time i mean it might be a day or two before they even tow it oh no shit wait so you're saying they bought time people have bought time no, no, I don't. I don't know. How would I know that? I'm just saying theoretically. We're talking about the rag in the tailpipe. We're talking about abduct pe- abducting people at their vehicle. I mean, I'm sure it's been done. I mean, there's got to be there's got to be some uh, serial killers or uh, violent criminals out there who who might have thought of this, like how to trick the police or buy extra time before the car gets towed, and nobody would ever know they even got abducted if they just put that uh, rag or white bag or whatever. So apparently, I don't know if uh, there was another person. I don't, I'm not 100% sure if they're referring to the Westmans or not, but in the old forums, there were mentioned, it was mentioned that at least one person living near the accident site said that a man was seen in Mora's car after the accident. So did the wet, before the story was changed, I would have to clarify this with Fred. Did the Westmans tell Fred that there was a man in the car? Or is this someone else telling Fred that somebody saw a man in the car and it's not the Westmans? Or they're speaking about the Westmans. We don't know. But the Bolo report is at 8 p.m. is for a five foot seven female. So what? It, it, yeah. You know, so another interesting theory that was proposed, are you following Maxwell? Yeah. So John Murat said, once again, that the, the car was backed up and to make it parallel to the road. So some online sleuths theorize that maybe the car was driven into the snowbank and this was the thud that Faith Westman heard as a cover-up for Mora's front-end damage. So it's almost like either the plan, the original conspiracy plan was changed or they wanted to stage it in front of the witnesses or they were witnesses that, yeah, it just, it's too risky because how do they know they can control their, whatever. If the plan was changed or it was on the fly, they were changing it up and they needed to cover up the front end damage, which was from something else was the, uh, and, and the car could be moved, but at that point they wanted to leave the car. So if it was Mora, she would have left. And if it's not Mora and someone else is staging her vehicle to make it look like her, and then 001 shows up and takes that individual away, then what do we have? Does that make all the pieces fit? Yeah, I don't know. Good thing you're doing a podcast on the case. Yeah, I don't know what to think of it. All right, so we got one more thing to go over, which was kind of damning, especially in staging an accident. We are going to talk about the wine box, the crushed wine box. So once again, just quick background. Supposedly, she spent around $40 in Massachusetts on alcohol before leaving. So we have the Franzia wine, Bailey's, Kahlua, and vodka. Only the wine was found in the car, according to Mary Beth Conway's article in the Whitman Hanson Express. But Haverhill PD told something to James Renner that was different. Okay, 
So in the photos of the Saturn, supposedly you can see spilled liquid, but people who have bought the Franzia wine box say that the color is not consistent with, with what's in the Saturn photographs and that it spilled way too much from the roof of the car to the sides and it looks completely off. So certain online sleuths theorize that either Cecil Smith or someone else, once again, we have witnesses saying the doors were open, that they that someone took the box and moved it all over the inside of the car, spilling it to make it look like it was the result of an accident when there was no accident. That way, the narrative of the DUI would have some more legs. So it, some people believe that the wine looks splattered instead of spilled, as if intentionally splattered. Was the bottle broken or not? So the box was crushed, which is another point of contention because supposedly those boxes are so tough. And supposedly, hmm... I mean, other things that don't add up is if there was a man smoking a cigarette there, would he be sitting around smoking a cigarette with the wine all over him if he's, it, it's kind of weird. And then Butch Atwood, of course, did not specifically state that Mora was covered in wine. Because if you look at the photographs, the wine looks like it, there was significant spillage, which would have included on the driver. So, yeah, the wine box was supposedly crushed. And, yeah, looking at some of these photographs, it seems like in order for, the, for it to spill the way it did, the box would have had to have been in the driver's seat. And the other thing that's weird, of course, it was taken to Mike Lavoie's private garage. And what did they do there? Well... You know, when it wasn't under the eyes of the neighbors, even though the neighbors didn't see a lot. So they could have staged a lot of stuff in Lavoie's garage as well. We don't know. Um, who's Lavoie again? <laughs> He's the tow truck driver. The guy that was not on rotation for that night, but they called him anyway. Uh, gotcha. So if they staged the accident, did they also stage the spilling of the wine? So... In the report, the wine was behind the driver's seat, was the box of Franzia wine. So that, for a car that didn't flip, how did the splash end up on the driver's side door and the roof and outside of the vehicle? Outside, outside of the vehicle? <laughs> yes, yeah, supposedly there was some splash on the outside of the vehicle as well. Like in the front or fucking... Past the windshield and shit, or what? I mean, I'm assuming outside of the driver's side door, but it doesn't stay. As if somebody walked out of the vehicle, I don't know. That's really weird. I mean, and she wouldn't open the window. I well, she, did she, did she window, smoke? I don't remember. Uh, one of the windows was open a crack, so some people theorized that somebody was... that. Once again, we don't know if Maura was driving, but somebody in the vehicle could have been a smoker and the window was cracked. So, uh, like, the window was open slightly as if to accommodate a smoker. Or that wasn't Maura at all, and it was one or two other people who were smokers. 
But another thing we can't dismiss is that the stains in the photographs of the Saturn, they could have theoretically, some people actually think it was McKay pepper spraying her and the pe there's pepper spray residue. <laughs> that one seems like, I don't know, that, that one, I don't know if there's enough evidence for that because there seems to be way too much pepper spray. Unless they got into a fight or and it got spilled, I mean, who knows? But it could have also been a stain from something unrelated to that night, and it could have been there from the previous month or two or three or from a previous accident. So we really, I mean, there's too many question marks here. But if it was staged and they're trying to make it look like a DUI walkaway, would they go as far as to spill the wine? So here's another mind shock. So once again, John Smith reported this. Wife of the fire chief said she saw a shopping bag with three large bottles, two liters of soda on the front seat. And this is never mentioned in any of the other reports. So... That is pretty interesting because if the Franzia wine box got, got smashed or destroyed from behind the driver's seat, how come the soda was still in the bag on the front seat? <laughs> Wait, say that one more time. Oh, man, Maxwell, what's going on? It's like one sentence. Wife of the fire chief said she saw a shopping bag. So they were en route in the fire truck and she said the accident looked staged and then there was a bolo for a tall blonde. Oh, okay, got it. She also stated she saw a shopping bag with three large bottles, like the large two-liter bottles of soda in the front seat. So oh, this Saturn? Yes. That's interesting. And this was never on any of the other reports. But here's the point I just made. If the Franzia wine box was behind the driver's seat and somehow spilled all over the place, how come the soda bottles are undisturbed sitting in the bag in the front seat? Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, it really makes you think. Really makes I, I can I can see the theory with the accident that was previous to the staging or whatever. Yeah. Like it could have been like she, she could really have hit something. And didn't report anything, and that was the that was the wine spill or something. Actually, wait, I don't know. That could be because they should buy that just earlier. John Smith also reported that uh, told one of the Murray family members. She told them all of this information within uh, within two weeks of the accident. So this is not something that's coming out years later. According to John Smith, this was reported within two weeks of the accident, within two weeks of February 9th, 2004. I mean, what, what I mean, the, the wine spill was, uh, the wine was bought just like an hour before, supposed, right? Like, Well, it would have been more than that if she bought it at, if she bought it at Amherst. Still like five hours or? The receipt is from 3.43 p.m. That's like four or five hours of that. 3.43, and, the, and then we're talking 7 to 7.30. So 3 or 4. Um, also, who else, who else reported the sodas besides No, uh, as far as I know, nobody. <laughs> nobody that... <laughs> did, did, did the Murray, did Fred Murray, like, like, was he mystified by that or what? Like, Well, we don't know. Nobody, see, all of these little tidbits that we go over on Mindtrack, for some reason, nobody wants to touch him. I mean... 
They're pretty. I think they're very, very curious because it, at least it points to at least it paints the picture that there's something more going on, and all of this is very, very weird. Wait. So, so the wine spill. If it was, if it truly was an accident by Mora, let's say Mora was in a car. Okay. If it was, if it really was an accident, she had an accident like a, an hour or two before, right? Well, no. If if if, if the spill if the spill was legit. Allegedly, there was an accident closer to 7 p.m., and then there was, so that's what was reported by certain witnesses that were listening to the police scanner. So, so, so it's possible that it was her with the accident and then had, right? Did we talk about I mean, the, theoretically, but how could the one, yeah, but even still, it depends on what kind of an accident. I mean, the car wasn't totaled, it didn't flip. How, how would some kind of robust Rugged. Uh, no, no, what, I, what I'm saying, like you said, there was an early accident. Like you think that was the reported accident? It was Mora too, and then she drove off and got in. Well, we went over all this. She was. We went over all this on that podcast. It could have been any number of scenarios. I don't think anything because how would we? I mean, there's not enough evidence to think anything. It could have not been her at the earlier accident as well, or it could have been her at the earlier accident, and then she somehow got away possibly and then they staged then so she was no longer part of the picture or they got rid of her some something happened to her and then so it was if it was her i think there's a greater chance it was her at the earlier accident because there's no evidence she was at the official accident so yes that's true that's what i'm thinking but it might have not there's no evidence there's no real evidence she left umass so there's no real evidence for her at an earlier accident either but even any kind of non-serious accident, it seems like it wouldn't cause the wine box to become damaged or spill. So that doesn't really add up, regardless of of any of it. So the way it was spilled, it looks like it looks like a hundred twenty mile per hour accident. That, well, that it spilled all over the place. place. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to say because it, it's really. I mean, it's impossible to really say. But what if again, maybe that wasn't the wine. It was something else from months ago, and it was just stains. We really don't know. I mean, it might have been from that night, or it might have been when when other witnesses drove by the Saturn and they said the door was were opened. Was that a police officer staging the DUI? <laughs> Or did the man with the cigarette stage the DUI before he got picked up by 001? If there was a man with a cigarette. That's another possibility. Someone else could have staged it as a DUI, not the police. Or a police impersonator. But we've hoped you received a ton of mind-shocking information on this episode in the Maura Murray series. As always, if you like the podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Just check the link in the description. Make sure you're subscribed to the channel. Hit the bell for notifications. If you like the podcast, hit the like button. Feel free to share it across social media platforms. Questions, comments, thoughts, theories, rebuttals, debunkings. Any comments at all, leave them in the comment section. You could also check us out on Reddit, Twitter, and Patreon. And patrons do get priority in case our podcast subject requests. This is Bruce McGuire signing off. And Maxwell Powers. We'll catch you guys next time.